0: Okay, so uh, we're in Acts chapter 11, if you guys want to pull it up on your phones. Uh, I know not everyone's been here for the whole series, and it's been a while also, so let me just set the stage a little bit. In the previous chapter, chapter ten, Acts chapter 10, we had Peter who had just preached the gospel to a group of Romans. So you guys know what the Romans are, right? Like, everyone knows history. The Romans are kind of the greatest empire the world had ever seen up to that point, so an analogy or an analog to today's world is Rome is kind of like the United States of America of its time. Everyone wanted to be Roman. Uh, Everyone wanted to be a Roman citizen. People would flock to the empire. But at the same time, if you were conquered by Rome or under Rome's authority, uh, those people would resent Rome, right? They would not really appreciate Roman power. Even though Rome had a lot of benefits that brought the gift of civilization to people, people would still resent Rome for coming and sort of forcing itself upon their land, right? That's a normal reaction different peoples would have. And the Jews were one group of people who had been conquered by Rome. And the Jews had this expectation that they were supposed to be the true kingdom through whom God would rule the entire world. That's the Jewish self-conception. Does that make sense? Um, And so because of that, the Jews especially had a, uh, a particular resentment of Rome. Because Rome was an obstacle in the way of uh, the new Israel coming back again. Israel great again, right? Uh, so, I hope he knows about that, right, Trump? But uh, so anyway, that was a bad joke. Anyway, <laughs> what happens in Acts chapter 10 is that Peter, Peter is part of this group of Jews who believe that the kingdom of God has arrived in the person of Jesus. That Jesus is the one that the Jews have been waiting for, for Israel to be, to be great again. But it's, it's happening in a surprising way. It's happening not through the way of conquest, but by the way of the cross. It's a totally different conception. It's not coming through power, but through service and acts of love and charity. And so Peter's part of this, Jew, this group of Jews, and in Acts chapter 10, something surprising happens. He preaches to a group of Jews, including this Roman centurion, a soldier, You know, if you hate the Romans, you're definitely going to hate the Roman soldiers, right? But a Roman soldier named Cornelius is converted. And he is brought to the Christian faith. And so now there's this question. The church is kind of like, Peter, what are you doing? You baptized a bunch of Romans. This has never happened before. Non-Jews have never been Christians before. There have been people who were Greek who did become Christian, but they were Greeks who had converted to Judaism first. So they were still Jewish, even if they had been born Greek. Do you guys get what I'm saying? So this is the first time that a non-ethnically Jewish person and a non-religiously Jewish person had converted to the Christian faith. That's what happened in Acts chapter 10. And what happened is Peter had preached the gospel to this group of Romans, and the Holy Spirit fell upon them in the exact same manner that it fell upon the original disciples way back in Acts chapter 2. You guys remember that? Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit falls upon the disciples gathered in the upper room, and what happens to them? They start speaking in tongues, right? The exact same thing happens to uh, the Romans. The Spirit falls upon them. While Peter is preaching to them, they start speaking in tongues. As soon as that happens, Peter is like, okay, you guys are obviously have the Holy Spirit. There's no, there's no justification for me not to baptize you. You share the same Spirit, the one Spirit that unites all believers, so you should share it in the one baptism that unites all believers. So that's what happened. That's Acts, Acts chapter 10. Um, and so... To set some further context for this, that's Acts chapter 10, but where are we in the scope of the entire book? Acts begins with uh, the disciples asking Jesus this question. All right, you say that the kingdom of God has come at hand, is near, then you died and we freaked out because we were like, we believed that the kingdom of God was coming through you, but you died, you were executed, so that means that the kingdom has failed, right? But now you're, you rose from the dead, you're back, so when is the kingdom coming? When are we going to get this off the ground? When are we going to make Israel great again? You know, so that's, that's kind of what the disciples are asking at the beginning of Acts. And Jesus answers in this way uh, that seems like a brush off. I don't know if any of you guys have ever experienced this, but I feel like growing up I had this experience a lot where I would ask a question, and it really, it really made me angry when it would happen to me. I would ask someone a question, and then some, they respond with an answer that's not an answer. Like they hadn't even been listening to me. So, you know, Sometimes this happens even with uh, my wife, Jisha, you know, I'll be like, Hey, do you want to go to this new restaurant? And then, you know, she, she turns her head, looks at me really intently. And she says, I she something <laughs> random that has nothing to do with the restaurant. She's just like, you know, I feel, I, I can't think of an example, <laughs> <laughs> but it's just something totally random. It has nothing to do with what I said. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, did you not just listen to what I said? Jesus does that over and over and over again to the disciples. The disciples will ask him a question and Jesus gives an answer and you're like, dude, were you even listening to me? That's what I'm trying to communicate with my bad example that I couldn't think of. So, <laughs> because they ask him, Jesus, are you going to bring the kingdom now? Like, we're, you, you rose from the dead, dude. It seems like we're going somewhere with this. And Jesus says, wait for me because I'm going to send the Holy Spirit and then you're going to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Okay, but what does that have to do with the kingdom, right? The ki- making like a physical kingdom here with you as king. You rose from the dead. What does that have to do? Jesus is like, wait for me. I'm going to send the Spirit. And the rest of the book of Acts is a delving into how Jesus was actually not brushing off the disciples with that question. It is the church that's providing a foretaste of the kingdom of God to the rest of the world. That's going to be completed at the end of time when Jesus comes back. And so the book of Acts is how God sovereignly and very creatively is working through this small fellowship of believers. It starts off with about a 100 people. Not a lot of people, a 100 people. And through that small fellowship, he actually conquers the rest of the world. That's what the book of Acts is about. And they spread from Jerusalem to Judea, to Samaria, to the ends of the world. Um, so what we see in Acts going through is a conflict between two different kingdoms. The way of the kingdom of God, which is a way of suffering. I mean, think about it. The, when the disciples are like, we're going to make a kingdom, do they start training in war? Do they start you know, beating sh- sh- swords? Do they start like weapons training? No, they don't. They just preach, and then when they're attacked, they die. That's what the disciples come. That's the way of the kingdom of God. And opposed to that is the ki- power and kingdoms of this world in this moment of time, represented by the Jewish leaders and by the Roman Empire. Religion and and the power of the state. The power of man-made religion and the power of the state against uh, the kingdom of God. So that's kind of what we have here. Uh, So let's get into Acts chapter 11. Can you read verses 1 to 3 for us?
1: The apostles and the brothers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God, so, when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, You went into the house of uncircumcised men and eat with them. Yeah.
0: So, what you see in the, those uh, three verses are three things you see the questioners, the questioned, and the question. So, the questioners, the person being questioned, and what the question was. And it, it's always interesting reading narratives because it's not like reading the law or reading. Um, the epistles, right? Sometimes there's more. Paul, when he writes a letter, he's giving you straightforward advice for the church. And so we have a very clear takeaway. When you read the law, it says, do not murder. Very clear cut. When we read a narrative, like the book of Acts, it's a story, right? And so sometimes it's more difficult for us to extract lessons or principles. But that's what we're going to be doing with this passage. And the first three lessons for us, I think, come from this idea of questioners questioned and questioned. So questioners, who are the questioners? There's this group of Jews called the circumcision party that show up starting in Acts chapter 11, but throughout the rest of the book, and then throughout the rest of Paul's letters too, if you ever read them. And basically the circumcision party has this opinion that if you want to become a Christian, you have to first become a Jew, religiously. So Judaism is both an ethnicity and a religion. You guys know that, right? And so you can convert to Judaism. And so these... Believers believe very strongly the kingdom of God is coming. They believe that Jesus is the Christ. They believe Jesus is the Messiah. They believe all that. But they think Christianity is really a Jewish religion. And so if you want to follow the kingdom, if you want to obey the ways of the kingdom, you have to first ethnically become Jewish. And Jesus never taught directly on the question of circumcision. It's not like Jesus ever said, if you want to convert to my religion or be a part of my kingdom, you have to be circumcised. Jesus never says anything like that. And so these, these people seem to have a point, right? Like they're saying, if you want to be a part of what we're doing, you have to first be ethnically Jewish because we are the people of God. And so that's why when they see that Peter has sat with not just Gentiles, but the enemy, the Roman soldiers, he's violated the law and he's baptized them. And so they, they have this valid question uh, you know, Peter, what are you doing? You're departing from the way of the kingdom of God as we understand it. So, and there seems to be a threat behind that, right? Like, if you were wrong, that's cause for discipline, right? That's cause for us to discipline you. Uh, And I I know sometimes for us, uh, sometimes for us it's difficult for us to understand why this is such a big deal uh, because we're used to living with people of other faiths or different backgrounds and we live in a pluralistic society. But for them, it was a huge deal. Because these are people who are being dragged away from their homes and imprisoned and killed for their faith. You know what I mean? And so, so it's like, it's easy for us to kind of sit in judgment of the circumcision party, but they are staking their entire lives on this religion. Do you get what I'm saying? On this faith that Jesus is Lord. We say Jesus is Lord, but as soon as something is like slightly inconvenient to us to actually living that way, we don't actually behave in such a way that our confession is true. Do you get what I'm saying? Like, as soon as it, there's that opportunity to like sleep with that girl or there's that opportunity to cheat on that test maybe or there's an opportunity to, you know, whatever, then that whole Jesus is Lord thing kind of flies out of our minds, right? These are, so it's, I, what I'm saying is I'm trying to caution you against judging these people for being so persnickety because they are actually staking their lives on the confession that Jesus is Lord, They're willing to die for it. They are dying for it. That's what happened to Stephen, right? He died for this confession. And so they take it very seriously because they actually believe it's true in a way that sometimes we think, oh, this might be like a nice thing, or yeah, it's true, but we don't live that way. We don't take it as seriously as they do. So they're, they, this is life and death for them. They are like, Peter, what are you doing? You're fraternizing with the enemy. You're forsaking maybe even the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that's the questioners, the, the, the people who are upset about this. Who's the question? Peter. He's, and Peter is the first of the apostles. It's never, you know, in the New Testament, if you go to, different churches have different traditions, right? And some people will say, you know, in the New Testament, there, Peter isn't the first of the apostles. And there's no such thing as bishops in the New Testament. And that's true. There is no bishop, quote unquote, as we understand it in the New Testament. Um, but if you have ever been in any group of people, like a group project, right? Isn't it natural that there's going to be someone who kind of, like, becomes the leader of the group? That's kind of what happened with Peter. Yeah, he doesn't have an official titer, title, but it's clear when you read the story, you know he's kind of the leader of the group. He's the leader of the group. He's the guy that stands up first to talk. And so that has a lesson for us in, in the life of the church as well, because Peter is still questioned by the community. And sometimes we have an attitude toward, you know, in some of our churches, toward our bishops, or maybe in other churches it might be toward your leaders in general, that we can never question them. That whatever they do is ipso facto, you know, holy and right. And to question them is to go against God. But here, Peter is still questioned. And Peter still feels that he can be questioned. He doesn't say, I'm the leader. You know, he doesn't say, oh, I'm the leader. Instead, he asks to respond. So there's a lesson for us there in terms of humility. And the second, I talked about this already, is the question. You broke Jewish law by eating with the Gentiles. You've departed from the way of the kingdom. That's a very serious charge. And that has a lesson for us in the sense that there are questions that are going to arise uh, as we journey forth as a church. you understand know what I'm saying? Like, we are a pilgrim people. And so it shouldn't surprise us. Jesus taught us a lot of things on how to live, but he didn't teach exhaustively on every subject. New questions arrive, like, what about gay people? How are... How are we supposed to include them? To what extent do we include them? Do we bless gay marriages? You know, some churches are arguing for that. Some churches are not. How do, you, how do we wrestle with those questions? Is, you know, is the question of gay marriage specifically addressed in the Bible? Um, or what about transgenderism, right? These are new questions that are coming up. I was reading the other day about uh, genetic, gene editing, uh, genetic engineering. It's going to be possible, you know, within the next 10 to 20 years where you can genetically design your child. What does the Bible have to say about that? These new questions come up. And the way that, the way that this question is resolved has so many lessons for us as the church. Uh, so that's why this is important. All right, I mean, let's read. Oh, actually, one more thing I wanted to say. It should reassure us that this controversy occurs early in the, in the life of the church. Because sometimes we may be tempted to think uh, that there was a golden age, right? That there was this period of time where everything was perfect, And then we fell away. And now look at us. Like, when we look at our church and our sort of tragic situations that happen where people are mad at each other, people are not understanding one another, people are fighting, there's conflict, we get really discouraged because we think this should not be this way. But even in the early church, there's this kind of conflict. And so that should reassure us, hey, the Spirit is still with us just like the Spirit is with them. And just as the Spirit resolved their conflicts, the Spirit will resolve our conflicts. So let's read verses 4 to 18.
1: Peter began and explained everything to them precisely as it had happened. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in the trance I saw a vision. I saw something like a large sheep being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to where I was. I looked into it and saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, reptiles, and birds of the air. Then I heard a voice telling me, Get up, Peter. Kill and eat. I replied, Surely not, Lord! Nothing impure or unclean has ever entered my mouth. The voice spoke from heaven a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times and then was pulled all up to heaven again. Right then, three men who had been sent to me from Caesarea stopped at the house where I was staying. The Spirit told me to have no hesitation about going with them. These six brothers also went with me and we entered the man's house. He told us how he had seen an angel appear in his house and say, Send, send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He will, he will bring you a message through which you and all your household would be saved. Yeah, awesome. Uh,
0: There are sort of three things I want to talk about from that little section as well. The first is, how does Peter respond to the question? How does he convince the people? Um, And the way that he responds is simply to recite his witness. It's testimony, right? All he does is relate what he saw and seen, and he submits it to the congregation for their judgment. Okay, this is what happened. You asked me a question. Does he? So does he say I'm the leader? You should just listen to me. No. Does he say? Uh, does he make some like deep philosophical argument of like what this all means? He he probably doesn't even know at this point what this all means. No, he doesn't try to do that. He doesn't try to get all deep or like anticipate all their objections or whatever. All he does is simply share what it is that he saw, and sometimes. I think this is is a very profound point that I want to just press upon your minds very, very powerfully in response to controversies in the church or in response to questions from our friends about Christianity or about, it may not even be about religion. It may even be for advice, right? One of the most powerful things that we have is our testimony. It's just sharing what we've seen and how we've seen God move in our lives. And that's all that Peter has to do here in order to win, the, uh, win the, the, the circumcision party to his point of view, at least for a while. Because as we'll see, this continues to be a problem in the books of, book of Acts, the circumcision party. All he has to do is share his testimony. This is what I saw. I went to Cornelius' house. I preached the gospel to them. As I was preaching to them, the, the same spirit of God that fell on us fell on them. As soon as I saw that, how could I deny them baptism? How can I stand in the way of what God is doing? That's all Peter says. And that's enough. That, I mean, that doesn't sound, I don't know. Like if you're someone who has like all these deep philosophical objections to Romans becoming Christians without becoming Jews first, does that answer all your philosophical questions? No, not really. And that's why it continues to be a problem down the road. But it's enough to keep them going because it's, it's just a powerful testimony. And we should have confidence in our testimony. We should have confidence just in witnessing to people. Second point I want to share briefly is that uh, what is the point of our unity? In in a lot of churches today, unfortunately, uh, we have so many differences, whether it comes to liturgy, whether it comes to how we exercise, you know, the gifts of the spirit, you know, like Pentecostal people say, you have to speak in tongues in order to know that, you know, you have (coughs) the spirit of God or whatever. And then there are other churches that say, oh, you have to have a priest who was in the valid order of succession with apostolic succession. You know what I mean? Like, the Apostle John, you know, ordained this person who ordained this person who ordained this person who ordained this person who ordained, person who ordained my children. And that's how I know that I have a valid sacrament. And that's how I know we're in the church. But the church, churches raise up all these different kind of objections, right? All these different ways of separating themselves from one another. And I think there's a lesson for us here in what Peter says. He says, God is surprising, And God is moving. This is God's church. This is not our church. So we can't erect these divisions where none should exist. When we see evidence of the Spirit moving in a community, then they are our community. Just because they belong to God. If it's God's Spirit, then it's our Spirit, because the same Spirit is on us. And that's the the basis for our unity. That's how we know that we belong to one another. And so, in a way, this goes back to... Jesus' prayer in John 17, right? It's a scandal when churches are divided on all these different questions because Christ's spirit should be on each community and so all these communities ought to belong together as one family. So that's the other point I wanted to talk about there. And then the last thing is, uh, if you could read verse 18 again.
1: 18? Yeah. When they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, so then God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life.
0: That's right. So it seems like they're satisfied, right? But as we will see as we continue through the book and as we continue, uh, if you read Paul's letters or other people's letters, you'll see the circumcision party doesn't go away. They, They get satisfied for a little bit, but then they continue to bring objections. Oh, okay, shouldn't you be following this law? Shouldn't you be doing these purification rites? All these different things. The lesson for us here is don't think that there are final victories when it comes to controversies. Don't think that there are final victories this side of the new creation. The same trouble rises up in different ways a lot. And we shouldn't be surprised by that, and we shouldn't be discouraged by that. Instead, we continue to press on in faith, because God is working toward a victory. Today, how many Christians argue about circumcision as you know a requirement to be a Christian? No one. God worked a victory. And yet, for the lifetime of one person, or the lifetime of maybe multiple people, uh, circumcision was a huge controversy dividing the church. All we can do is be faithful in the face of these controversies that are pressed upon us, and we can't get annoyed. I think a lot of times we lose heart when we're like, I already addressed that objection. Why are we having the same conversation that we had, you know, five months ago? We can't be surprised by that, and we can't be discouraged by that. All right, let's uh, read verses 19 to 21.
1: Now those who have been scattered by the persecution <coughs> of connection with Stephen, traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, telling the message only to Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Syria, went to Antioch again, and began to speak to the Greeks also, telling them that the good news of the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord.
0: What we see here, and I'm just going to speak briefly on this point, is the sovereign hand of God at work. Remember what I talked about at the beginning, how Jesus had promised... You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Well, what happened was there was this community in Jerusalem, right? Peter preaches the first sermon uh, of the church in Acts chapter 2. He converts a bunch of people. They become Christian. 3,000 people are saved. But they all sit in Jerusalem because they don't know what to do. You know, they're just sitting. And then the persecution starts, and people start being killed like Stephen, and people are dragged off to prison. And so what does the church do? They scatter, right? They run away because they're being hauled off to prison. But through the scattering... Jesus' promise is actually being fulfilled. We read about Philip going to Samaria. I don't know if you guys remember us talking about that. He goes to Samaria. Then he preaches to the Ethiopian eunuch. So now the gospel is moving to Ethiopia and Africa, and it's moving to Samaria. And now in this verse, we're seeing people had uh, fled to places like Cyrene and Cyprus and Antioch. You guys know what Antioch, right? Like in the Orthodox Church, that's where they say their patriarch is, right? Well, it's Antioch. This is how it happened. It was through persecution that, paradoxically, God founded the church in Antioch. And so we see the sovereign hand of God at work through that. Uh, and, so, and, and that's how Jesus' promise is fulfilled Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the world. And now let's read verses 22 to 26.
1: News of this reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord in all their hearts. He was he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. The Barnabas went to Tar- Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch.
0: First of all, I just want to say. Abby has a good Malayali pronunciation of Barnabas. (laughs) That's that's the proper way, man. Good job. (laughs) Uh, Other other few comments on that that passage. First, so the Christians had kind of, this was not an organized mission program. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, the Christians had scattered, and just by being themselves, sharing their testimony like I was talking about, people were being converted. No one came, like, no one was sent, quote-unquote, as a missionary. It was just normal people who were fleeing persecution but still staying true to their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who actually led people to faith. And now all this stuff is happening out there and people are hearing, oh, Greeks are becoming Christians. And so the church in Jerusalem is kind of like the headquarters. And so they're like, hey, what's going on out there? So they're like, okay, let's send out someone to investigate what's going on so we understand for ourselves. And there's a lot of wisdom for us in, in that as well because... One of the temptations, uh, especially when there's a lack of trust, and there would be a lack of trust between the Jews in Jerusalem and Greeks who are becoming Christians, there would be a lack of trust. One of the temptations when we have a lack of trust is to believe rumors, right? And not see for ourselves. But what the church does in this situation is actually very wise. They send someone who's very trusted, Barnabas, who we heard about earlier, who sold a field to give money to the poor. uh, And now he is being sent to go and see, hey, what is happening, and report back. So instead of just believing rumors, instead of uh, confirming our own biases, a lot of times we have to go and see. We have to go and see what is happening. The uh, second thing I want to talk about here is what did he see? Barnabas went there and he saw, verse 23, the grace of the Lord was upon them. Uh, the bishop, uh, Leslie Newbigin, one of the founding bishops of the CSI Church, he has this saying, the congregation is the only true hermeneutic of the gospel. Do you guys know what hermeneutic means? It means the only true interpretation, the only true evidence of the gospel. So what does he mean by that? The congregation is the only true evidence or interpretation of the gospel. When a group of people live and die by the confession that Jesus is Lord, not the way you and I sometimes are so tempted to say we're Christian, where remember what I was saying about earlier, as soon as there's a little inconvenience to what we want, that confession Jesus is Lord is out the window. Uh, but when there's a group of people who actually believe it, who sacrifice everything because they actually believe it, that they believe it is the most true thing about reality, and they love their Lord and Savior, when there's a group of people who are like that, the result is the most beautiful community in the world. I really believe that. That's what Leslie Newbigin is saying. When there's a group of people, of, of men and women, who actually believe Jesus is Lord, if Jesus is Lord, Jesus is the God-man who died out of love for his enemies, Right? So if he's our Lord, then how are we supposed to be living? That means everything that we have is not ours, but is meant to be given away for the sake of the world. And if there's a congregation, if there's a group of people, if there's a community of people who are actually living like that, it is so beautiful that people cannot help but believe the gospel. That's the grace of the Lord that's upon them. And so when Barnabas comes there, he sees that joy, he sees that sacrifice, he sees that love in that community. And he's like, the Spirit of God is here. Just like when Peter went to, uh, to Cornelius, in that, in that you know, situation, the Spirit of God came and it was speaking in tongues. Right? In this situation, the Spirit of God comes, but it's in their unity. It's in their love. It's in their brotherhood. It's in their fellowship. And Barnabas sees it and he says, yeah, the Spirit of God is here. And so there's no way that I can deny that they have fellowship with us. The other thing I want to say here is that Barnabas sees that they have this fellowship but he also realizes they need a teacher. They need a teacher. And it's very interesting. We have to read between the lines here. He seems to recognize that he has the gift of encouragement, but he may not have the gift of teaching by himself. And so he's like, who should I go get to teach? Oh, wait, I remember this guy named Saul, who was a persecutor of the church, but he's like one of the most learned lawyers. Uh, he's one of the most learned teachers of the law. Maybe I should go find him. He's a Christian now. Maybe I should find him and bring him here to Antioch to teach these people. Because sometimes, you know, you may have like a a new experience of God, but you don't actually know enough like facts or wisdom. And so you need a teacher and you need to submit to a teacher. And Barnabas is humble enough to realize, hey, I might not be equipped to do this by myself. So he goes and finds Paul. He brings him to Antioch. And together they teach that community in Antioch. And in Antioch is the first place that the community of Jesus followers is called Christian. It's in Antioch that that happens. All right, let's read the last few verses of this chapter, 27 to 30.
1: During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and, through the Spirit, predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, each according to his ability, decided to provide help for the brothers living in Judea. This they did, sending a gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. All right,
0: thank you. So here we're introduced to this guy named Agabus. We're going to see him again, I think, in chapter 23. And he has the gift of prophecy, right? So we see, like, different gifts in, the, in this chapter. Agabus has the gift of prophecy. Paul has the gift of teaching. Barnabas has the gift of encouragement. This is the reason why we need each other, because one person does not have all the gifts. The, 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 the strength of the gospel, the beauty of the spirit, the, the beauty of the fellowship comes up when there's a group of three or four of us even who are able to share our gifts for the good of one another. And we're able to lift one, or, one another up. That's one of the beauties of Christianity. It's not just about one guy leading. It's about everyone bringing what they have to offer to contribute. It, it challenges the spirit of consumerism in, our, in, in, in American Christianity especially. I think that's a huge thing. It's consumerism, right? It's I, Do I like the worship at this band, at, of this band at this church, or do I like the worship of this band at this church? Okay, so I get to choose, right? I'm shopping. Well, this this church gives me really good preaching, but this this church has really good you know worship, and so I choose, I I I I consume, I shop, for a church, but what what we see here in Acts as a whole, and also in this chapter, is that it's not about that. That's not what Christian life is about. It's not about consumption. It's about contribution. What do I have that I can bring for the life of this community? That I can sacrifice for the life of this community? You know, one of the things I've valued about the gifts of Abhi is like his organization skills, his administrative skills. I don't have that gift. And so he brings that to the table for me. I maybe give him like an older perspective on things. So And so through that, we're both edified, right? We're both uh, enlightened. That's the way a church should be. And Agabus brings here the gift of prophecy. We're going to see him again in Acts chapter 23 because he also makes prophecy about Paul when he goes to prison. So that's Agabus. And we see the fruit of the Spirit of God here in a different way. Uh, in the congregations that are scattered across the Roman world, not all of them are Jewish. Some of them are Greek, right? They're very poor. Agabus makes this prophecy. There's a famine coming to the Roman Empire. It kind of reminds us of, uh, you know, Joseph having that dream in Egypt that there's a famine coming. uh, And Joseph, like, industriously provides for all the nations of the world. Here, it's the church that steps up in the place of Joseph, in a way. Because the church realizes, okay, this famine is coming. We're going to prepare. And we're going to make sure that we prepare so that the poor, especially in Judea who are maybe most vulnerable, are provided for. And we see evidence of that. That's part of the, actually part of the reason why Paul and Barnabas start traveling around the world, is to go to these different churches to collect offerings to bring back to the poor in Judea so that they can survive. And that's the result. Again, that, that brings us to the conclusion of this. Uh, and back to that, that thought by Leslie Newbegin: The congregation is the truest hermeneutic of the gospel. And so my prayer for us is that we would be a people who live and die by the confession that Jesus is Lord so that when people look at us, they see uh, Christ crucified on the cross in our community. Uh, So with that, let us close our eyes in prayer. Heavenly Father, we just pray that um, this fellowship of people as we go out would just be convicted of the beauty of your gospel that Jesus Christ, the God-man who died out of love for people who hated him, who ignored him, who neglected him, who thought him worthless, um, that he loved us so much that he died for us. Um, We are the people who were his enemies and whom he has transformed into his very body. And so since we belong to his body, God, make us into people who are willing to sacrifice everything out of love uh, and devotion to you and to our neighbor. In Jesus' name I pray. Thank you.